Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartsman. I'm Bianca Brumman. And I'm Lara Chan Baker. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast from the Jackie Winter Group, which is a creative production and representation studio based in Melbourne and New York City. What originally started as a business conference for artists and fellow creatives is now being turned around to shine a light on our clients. From art buyers and creative teams to fellow producers and managers, this podcast is all about offering a glimpse into the work we do as the bridge between clients and creatives. It's an ongoing exploration of how to wrangle the creative process to achieve excellence no matter what the medium. Now, today is our third episode, and we're going to chat about how you might go around regulating freelance and um, different legislation that's being introduced there, as well as the balancing act of engaging in pro bono work or charity work. First up, how is everyone doing today? I'm really well. I well, I mean, I've been sick, yes. so I'm lying, but, um, you know, fake it till you make it, right? No, Jeremy, people keep telling me what a wonderful radio voice you have. I keep hearing that over and over again, like our very own <laughs> Fraser Crane. This is an actual quote from my partner, Lorelai, who wrote this in. Lara's voice is just so nice, all caps to listen to. I could literally listen to it all day. Would hire her to read books to me. Uh, I'm up for that job. I'm available. I got a for the record, my voice is highly listenable too from her. But yes, no, it's um, it's it's great. We're really excited from all the feedback so far. Um, again, if you haven't rated or given us a little review in iTunes, that would be really helpful. So we know that we're reaching people apart from our parents who really love the I show. I mean, my parents love it. <laughs> and, our, and our artists as well. Sorry, I, B. I, I haven't told my parents that I'm on a podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> How are you, by the way? I'm well. I'm coming to you live from Brooklyn. Excellent. So let's see what is going on this week. Um, lots of stuff to cover before we get into our little topics. Um, so first of all, we have launched our new animatic and storyboard offering, The Bowery. A bit of self-promo here at bowery.jackiewinter.com. I guess it's not the sexiest kind of stuff that we do, but it is kind of one of the most important things in terms of storyboarding and visualization and also introducing a new offering where we can do 3D storyboards like those kind of Korean news broadcast um, pieces. Um, but yeah. That's, We're very excited. We are very excited. What else is going on? Some of the things that have been going around Slack this week. Jeremy, one you particularly like is this Ori app. Well, yes, this Ori app. Which, is that how you say it? I don't know. It's O O R A I. I think it's like um, oral AI. Oral, oral. AI. Oh, I, I don't know. I think, <laughs> 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 um, yes, this is something that I found myself on Slack. Nobody else helped me find it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you think you found it first? I found it first. I sent it to you in a private DM um, on Slack. You didn't really respond. You sort of said something like, mm, cool. And then weeks later, you posted it in the group Slack saying, look at this awesome thing I found. Isn't this interesting? How great am I? I'm the boss. Mahaha. Yeah, classic boss move. Verbatim. That's exactly what you said. (laughs) Okay. Well, look, I'm not going to confirm or deny whether that did happen, but I will confirm that, yeah, this is a really interesting app, especially very relevant to our kind of, um, to our podcast challenges, which I got to say, Podcasting is really hard. It's, it's bloody hard. It's not as it's like it's not as easy as it sounds. I thought no. we could have just kind of gone in here and just you We know, tried that and it failed. It, it felt so bad. <laughs> I think we were really like we were really buoyed by the first numbers and we were looking at like this is going great. We can just go in here, just this is we can just we can just we don't need to take notes. And we fucked up really bad. We fucked up so bad. Oh, we're gonna have to put the explicit tag on this episode actually now because of that. Anyway, um 
Yeah, we messed up, so we're re-recording. The whole last episode is completely in the can. But this is an interesting related app because this thing, Ori, is basically, it's AI. It helps you become a better public speaker, it says. And it has all these different exercises. It records all of your kind of speech and it has, um, it examines it for filler words, pace, and energy. So how fast you're speaking, how much kind of energy, how much variation in tone you're using, and also the filler words they use, which we talk about in production a lot. And they have different exercises that give you things to read or give you things to talk about. So one of them is a tongue twister that's, that makes you repeat. I slit the sheet. The sheet I slit. And on the slitted sheet I sit. <laughs> <laughs> I am so I just... <laughs> curious to try this, though, because... Growing up, my mother, who I haven't called and told that I'm on a podcast, my mother growing up would actually count in a number of times I said like when I was in a conversation with her. She would stand there and count. <laughs> Clearly it helped. Being <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, listening back to the podcast is so interesting to know. It's, oh my God. See, I just caught myself out. I say so interesting so much. I say so kind interesting of. Your favorite is kind of. Oh my God. It's, so yeah. <laughs> we're it, not here to pick on you. Even if nobody is listening to it, it's been a great exercise. <laughs> <laughs> to improve our own um, our own voices here. So yeah, check out Ori app. Um, another funny thing that's kind of been going around Slack is this site called Papersizes.io, which is really interesting because working across different countries as well in a lot of print medium, there are so many different paper sizes and how that's been standardized is so interesting. Lots of sizes like Junior Legal, which I've never heard about, but that's a that's a really great resource. So that immediately in the bookmarks bar. Um, what else? B also kind of showed me this um, weekly newsletter called. Um, I can't even pronounce this. Taka Nataka. Uh, it's a newsletter from Natalie Semchuk, who's a digital project manager, and some really great insights in her newsletters. And yeah, I think newsletters might be the new podcast in so many ways. I'm loving all these kind of short form newsletters oh, that I have people so are doing. So many good newsletters. So many. Um, another one that we've been reading or that I particularly like is the off screen one. So, off screen magazine, Kai, who um, runs off screen out of Melbourne and Berlin, has a weekly dispatch. So, we'll put links to both of those. But yeah, if you like the things that we're talking about on the podcast, definitely check out Natalie's weekly newsletter. And the last thing that B has been kind of showing around has been this um, these kind of different websites that have all these different, I guess, they're kind of resource stacks of articles and web apps to use. The one that has been going around lately is called The Future of Work. Um, but who's, do you know what business is running that one? Yeah, it's a business called Noble and, they're, and they call themselves an organizational design firm. And from what I understand, I kind of believe that they're consultants that use perhaps design thinking to work with teams and organizations on maintaining culture with rapidly scaling um, startups as well as looking at communication challenges for bigger businesses. So, yeah, they have an incredible resource tool of things that are great. Yeah, there's um, another app that I like that really does that well is called Bonsai, which is kind of a... Oh, Bonsai is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll, we'll definitely come back to Bonsai when we talk about our contracts, but they have a whole kind of um, freelance tools kit. And this is where I like reading these because this is where I kind of find new apps and tools as well. So yeah, we'll put links to all those things on the show page. But the whole idea is that it's enabling people you know, to have access to things that they might not normally have access to, freelancers in particular. Exactly. And in one place as well. So like, I, And I like the kind of curation aspect of yeah. that as well. It's really nice. Actually, when you said organizational design studio made me realize that the one bit I recorded last week that never made it was how we were talking about Domino's Pizza, their technology company who happens to make pizza. I just wanted to get that back in there because I thought it was a really good line. Genuinely work for Domino's. <laughs>
Okay, so moving on to our first topic here. Uh, Australia doesn't have any kind of regulatory body for freelancers for companies that hire them, leaving them with very few workers' rights. Is it time for a regulatory body to look at their freelancers like is currently being proposed in the States? And why would it be beneficial for companies to pay their freelance workers on time, which is really um, the crux of the issue here and has massive effects on both sides of the equation? This is something that kind of came up through two articles and reports that have popped up in um, publications, I think, that we read Ad News and Mumbrella. Laura, can you give us a bit of an overview, I guess, what the current scenario is in Australia and what are the issues that are being faced at the moment? Yeah, sure. So the reason that this is um, sort of all over various publications at the moment is that um, this big conversation that's been sparked by Kate Carnell, who is the Australian Small Business Ombudsman, um, and she did a big inquiry into basically payment times and practices for small businesses, um, which you know encompasses freelancers. Um, and the inquiry was published in April this year, I believe. Um, and it found a whole lot of interesting stuff. We'll publish a link to the full um, reports. They're really, really interesting to read um, in the show notes. But some of the key things were things like uh, the payment terms are often stretched out up to like 120 days, which is nuts. Um, you know, one in two people had more than 40% of their invoices paid late, which again is just totally nutso. And she's now sort of uh, doing this big government push to try and regulate payment times for freelancers and small businesses. Interesting. And I think they she uses the kind of US model as an example of something that could be put in place in Australia. And I guess, yeah, for a more American perspective, B, you did some research into mm. that. What did you find? Yeah, I mean, here in New York earlier this year, they um, the Freelance Isn't Free Act came into effect, which is the country's first act to actually protect freelancers against non-payment and a couple of other bodies here are trying to petition for that to be brought into effect throughout the US. Um, so that's basically a law that mandates that freelancers be paid in full for work worth more than $800, either by a date set forward in writing or within 30 days of completing an assigned task. And it also protects them from employer retaliation and increase monetary consequences from employers who refuse to pay. I think this is really the crux of the issue here. And and this is, I think, every freelancer that we know has had to deal with late payment terms. It's probably one of the biggest issues that we face. And our primary job is managing a freelance workforce. And I think everything that we know about the direction that creative businesses are going is relying more on creative um, freelancers as well. Mm. So really, you know, this this isn't about kind of talking about, yeah, how... It's so unfair that there are, people don't get paid on time. It, it's unfortunately become this kind of a reality. It's really more about having conversation with clients and kind of really understanding why it's in their best interest to understand these issues and pay people on time, why it's actually good business and good for them and good for everybody. It really does kind of start at the top. Mm. And it's so interesting because it's, it's really about the process. Like I feel that it's kind of become an issue it's something that could be dealt with so much easier kind of upfront. Well, Jeremy, we for about- someone like who, you know, deals with, well, I guess understands cash flow, you know, you're a business owner and you probably understand cash flow much better than Lara and I, apart from perhaps an artist, you know, being a bit firmer about their payment terms and maybe asking for part payment upfront. I mean, what could a client do? Well, this is uh, this is kind of a really interesting thing. I mean, one thing I'm really interested in is process, basically, like what the kind of workflow kind of process actually is. And one thing that I still don't fully kind of understand is, especially in advertising, why it seems to be this culture of kind of chaos that's happening kind of all the time. Like it's always an emergency. It's always crazy. I'd really like to know why. Um, so I'd, this is a conversation that I'd really kind of like to have more with our clients. Well, a lot of the times that there are issues with invoicing, it's like one 
when you're dealing with a huge company as well, getting into a payment system is so painful. And the systems that run them are these enterprise pieces of software that are so difficult to use. And I kind of do sympathize a lot with our clients who have to manage those, that it is really hard to get into them. I mean, sometimes we have to get our accountants involved just to kind of fill out online forms sometimes. It's so And you so have to get difficult. references from other clients and you have to supply like 12,000 documents. This is I, this is another big thing that I guess is really difficult, that a, a freelance economy is, is a bespoke situation that is completely customized. And these accounts payable systems are rely on kind of taking the biggest hammer that you can to knock out every problem. And every freelancer's thrown into the kind of same mix and it's like yeah that's the thing like we have had to especially dealing with larger organizations and reading these articles and especially the comments i think some of the feedback is the same that it's actually the much bigger organizations the bigger you work with the bigger the problem i know that Mm -hmm. it's especially true with some kind of grocery store chains as well and this is a problem that is in their whole business model that it's not just kind of vendors and creative partners but also suppliers Mm -hmm. and people who supply food and farmers it goes kind of all the way down the chain and i think the ad news article there was a comment from the communications council ceo who uh, who said typically freelancers are placed on contracts with invoices paid between seven to 14 days of being submitted. And I don't know much about what comms council do, um, but that, I mean, that seems completely disconnected. I mean, we do thousands of commissions a year and I can probably say there's only been a handful of times where clients are paid within 14 days, let alone seven. And that's usually, and it's the small, clients. yeah, it's the smaller businesses. Mm. And look, again, we're not kind of begrudging anyone. It's really kind of about, I guess, having these smaller conversations like that hopefully can trickle back up, back upwards. And I mean, as well, you, you sort of look at why is this an issue? And I think sometimes clients don't understand why why it's an issue when they pay things late, you know? And it, Yeah, and that and it's really difficult to have those conversations as well because like, you know, the, the kind of points that you try to make and the kind of approaches that work, especially in the big organizations, like you, you can't, like there's a limit to how aggressive you can be and how much power the people that you're actually interfacing kind of have. Um, there are some kind of strategies that I think we'll, we'll come to at the end. But yeah, I, I completely agree with what you're saying over there. But it's, it's, I think clients do need to factor that into the whole kind of equation that it's not just about the creation of the work, but keeping your vendors kind of happy is how you guarantee the best work, making sure your vendors are not kind of stressed out by the fact that they can't pay their bills on time is also not going to, that's going to compromise the work that you get in the yeah, end. Yeah, and I mean, more and more and more, as you said, we're moving very quickly towards a freelance economy. And, and if you want this pool of talented freelancers to draw from, you have to make sure that these people are able to pay their bills. Absolutely. And furthermore, I think that it's not just individual freelancers. A lot of projects that we're working on as they get bigger and bigger, you know, our freelancers are hiring other freelancers and it's like it does go it it does kind of have this kind of knock-on effect and especially when we're working in kind of built environment jobs or any other thing like there are kind of hard costs that need to be dealt with up front as well so i do i do support some kind of regulation here and i think the the nice thing about regulation here is that it kind of it depersonalizes the process a bit more. Totally, it takes the emotion out of it exactly and and that is really kind of what it's about and it's and as we know yeah, money and emotions, like they are oh, really hard. Intrinsically linked, yeah. Exactly. No one wants to have a conversation about money. The Freelancers Union here in the US actually released an iPhone and Android app following the Freelancers and Free Act coming into effect. I guess with the aim to help connect freelancers with lawyers who actually understand the freelance landscape and can help deal with these perhaps smaller claims more easily and to really help simplify the dispute process. Coming back to the Freelance Isn't Free Act quickly, though, something we discussed before the show when we were researching for this episode, 
is that when reading about the reform in more detail, there's still definitely a bit of ambiguity in there, especially around contracts and payment terms, which may still actually mean that the power falls in the client's favour. Some of the clauses too kind of sound like they might exclude a large chunk of freelancers from being covered by the law. For example, it looks like the law really only covers work that spans over at least a four-month period, which is a reason it's always good to read the fine print. But I think though that while the law might not be perfect, the fact that discussion around freelance rights is starting to happen at a government level is definitely a step in the right direction. This is what we're really trying to do with this podcast is open up these discussions and really want to hear more from clients in this regard because we want to kind of make it easier for you and our clients like to have these conversations with the people that are actually kind of making decisions and implementing these systems because, yeah, their job isn't easy in this regard. And it's 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 hard for kind of everybody. Look, in addition to, to, these, um, to these campaigns, um, there are kind of things that we as businesses and vendors can do. Um, I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on these as well. But I think one of the biggest things that we try to do, especially for larger jobs, is do commencement invoices and try to get payment up front. And I think that like by the time you go through all the pro- all the pain of kind of setting up a project, getting approval, getting a PO on it, all that kind of stuff, it doesn't take much more to then actually continue that process and get in the system and get commencement payments. There are so many times that clients have come back to us and said, oh, no, we don't do that, or that's not part of our process, and it has been able to change. So again, I think the bigger the company, the bigger resistance to change, but it doesn't mean it's not possible. Uh, Another thing that we do as well is early payment discounts. Like There's nothing like the people feeling they're getting a deal, especially if they are getting a deal. And you are actually kind of, you can save money by paying people early. And that's been a huge thing for us as well. And that's helped cash flow for everybody. Um, another thing that I'm really interested in is this whole kind of idea of escrow, which a few people have been talking about in the comments of the um, of these two pieces that we're going to be linking to. But this idea that the service that we provide is just like kind of anything else, like you you commission it and you don't get it until you pay for it. So this idea of kind of digital or creative escrow where kind of there's this kind of third party, you put whatever creative product you've done over there, the client puts the money in, the money gets received, you get the thing. It seems pretty basic and transactional. Mm. And I'm seeing kind of more of that um, starting to happen in the digital space. So again, going back to the different apps that we're looking at, um, it's, yeah, it's a, interesting space to watch. I think the bottom line here is that we're all trying to get the best out of each other. Everyone does better when they know when their money's coming in, how much is coming in. Uh, The more your personal life is settled, the more your professional life can thrive and the better work that we can do. I think professional agreements are a huge part of that. And I think that is really just like the brief underpinning the creative agreements have to underpin your engagement and payment terms are a big thing about that. And they have to be kind of agreed to. And I think that when we look at the different kind of tools that are available to freelancers and the different businesses that assist freelancers, um, there are lots of things that are interesting that are happening in that space. But I think it it goes both ways. If you're uh, someone who commissions creative talent, you need to educate yourself on the issues there. And if you're somebody who is a creative as well, you need to make sure that that part is looked after in your business. Moving on. Often companies or individual creatives are asked to engage in pro bono work, whether for a charity or not-for-profit. It is a big part of the creative industry and an awkward area to navigate at times. Uh, I want to start by asking the very, very basic but important question. What is the difference between not-for-profit and charity? 
Well, I could take that one. <laughs> Please do. Um, I guess it all boils down to this. Just because a business isn't profitable doesn't make it a non-profit. And just because a business isn't, oh, is a non-profit rather, that doesn't make it a charity. So um, to start with the actual definition, um, despite its very liberal use, the term charity has a very specific meaning in Australian law. Charities are a type of non-profit organisation. So not all non-profits are charities, but all charities must be non-profits. Um, so under the statutory definition of charity, um, charities are defined as non-profit organisations that have demonstrated that their purpose is to benefit the public. So then how do you tell if you're dealing with a charity or um, some other type of non-profit? Um, Jessica Hirsch, who a big, big fan of, a very talented letterer, illustrator, type designer um, and other things from the US, um, who is equally talented in her approach to and analysis of managing creative projects and um, the tricky discussions that come with being a commercial artist. Um, and one of those things is responding to requests for free work. And she has this amazing interactive feature on her site uh, called Jessica's Client Email Helper. Uh, I'm sure many of you listening would have seen this already. Um, it's done the rounds many, many times because it's wonderful. Um, and it addresses all sorts of client requests, but in particular, it looks at pro bono work. And one of the key things that she points out early on is this need to differentiate between a nonprofit and a charity. Um, she gives this great little uh, spiel. Um, she says, if you're wondering how I differentiate a nonprofit from a charity, I generally ask myself, is everyone volunteering or just me? Nonprofits run the gamut from tiny volunteer-only collectives to huge organisations with multi-million dollar operating budgets. Ask yourself, which end of the spectrum is the organisation on? Mm. Really, really interesting. And I think this is something that's come up because it was just really bizarre. Like in the last three months, we were getting so many requests to get involved with different charity so, campaigns so and many. pro bono work. And I think it's something that definitely makes our ears prick up because as people who work a lot in advertising, we're always looking for opportunities to do good. But at the same time, it's like there is kind of a there is a line that we have to kind of be mindful of where we all of a sudden like we're getting three, four kind of requests a week. And I think clients enjoy coming to bigger groups because they know we have a bigger pool to choose from. But at the same time, it, yeah, it's really it's really kind of treacherous waters in that way, because a lot of especially in the advertising world, a lot of charity and pro bono work ends up kind of being fodder for award shows. And there is a huge financial benefit to to what what ad agencies get out of it. If, um, you know, maybe someone is on the board of something and they're trying to kind of look good or they're trying to win business in kind of an other way. So, look, we're not saying there isn't any altruistic merit there at all. There usually is. And we always kind of want to be a part of that. But I guess this is more of a question that we're trying to ask. It's like, yeah, when is it okay to donate work? Um, when, you know, how else can this kind of be explored? Um, B, what are your thoughts on this? I think... Uh... When clients and advertising agencies are approaching artists to donate their time or their skills or their work for a campaign, I think it's I think that there's a few things that, that maybe that they should keep in mind in the way that they actually approach an artist to lend their skills. So the first would be in allowing flexibility for the artist to um do it on their own terms so making sure that it kind of runs in the same way as an actual commission where there's you know we're actually outlining the scope of the brief and what the artist is actually able and comfortable to deliver for the campaign so I think that 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 needs to be that's a conversation that needs to happen up front but in terms of the way that art sorry the way that clients are approaching artists to lend their time or 
lend their skills for a pro bono or a charity project. I kind of feel like it should be approached in the same way as maybe a brand partnership or collaboration. Um, you know, like an influencer collaboration where the artist is perhaps lending more than their name and likeness to a campaign as well as their skills. You know, I kind of feel like if you're a brand, you probably wouldn't approach an artist that's living, you know, in an urban environment uh, like New York to partner with you to leverage their personality and their social audience for something that's advertising like a outdoorsy adventure rock climbing gear. Like it's just kind of a partnership that wouldn't make sense. And I feel like for pro bono campaigns and partnerships in that way, it's a similar thing. It's, you know, it's clients kind of need to do the research into who the artist is and, and trying to get a sense of maybe what their beliefs are and maybe looking into communities where artists are already being activists in that, way before approaching absolutely Mm. (laughs) something that you mentioned earlier also kind of ties in before with what we're talking about about agreements where um the has anyone seen this contract put together by segura inc which is the one page no bullshit contract no Uh, it's really funny it's 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 a whole it's like i don't know if it's the actual contract that they use but it looks like it and it's kind of 10 lines and then at the end there's a pro bono section it says if you want your way you have to pay if you don't pay, I have final say. So <laughs> I think I think that's you know a really interesting summation. And I think as well, like this is where we get into the whole can of worms, which is exposure. <laughs> and there were a few interesting um, there were a few interesting cartoons that were kind of going around in our Slack when we were kind of trying to discuss this topic. And I think this is one of the most misunderstood aspects of not just pro bono and charity work, but I guess the the creative process in general, because especially in the current economy, I mean, exposure isn't really currency in this kind of in this kind of way, and people get burned by exposure. It's sometimes you know physically and literally in that way, <laughs> but um, but it does work that way. Like when if especially these charity campaigns can be you know very visible, and I think what's a really interesting thing that a lot of artists have to navigate now is that once you're kind of out there and you're kind of associated with one kind of campaign or one kind of thing, it can be hard to get repeat business, especially in the work that we do as illustrators. I think for photographers who can be a bit more, you know, a bit a bit more multifaceted in their approach, like there may be a bit more flexibility there. Less recognizable there. sometimes in their work. Exactly. Mm. So it, it is kind of something really challenging where it's like, okay, if you're giving all this, you know, if you're giving this away... Um, maybe it's the exposure isn't really the compensation. It can actually work against you. So what are some alternative forms of compensation that you can explore? Um, we have talked a lot about this internally when these things have come up. What have you guys noticed has been successful in that regard? Yeah, I mean, you know, really asking someone to work for free, for free, free, means that you don't give them anything of value, right, in exchange for the work that they give you. But, of course, there are other things that you can offer that are valuable that aren't money, Um depending on the person. It could be product or travel or um, a kidney. Um, but I think, you know, one mistake people make when asking for work and they don't have the cash to pay for it is that they don't take the time to figure out what valuable things they can offer. And, th- and there is often something. However, those that do come up with something often fail to check whether that thing is actually anywhere close to the same value as the work that they're asking for or whether what they're offering is even actually worth anything to that person, you know, and that's where we come into things like exposure. And um, if we're sort of, again, yeah, exposure, it's the big one. It's the tricky one. Um, And there are so many sides to this, but I don't think that exposure really counts as compensation. Mm. Um, well, no, it's, it's, it, I mean, there's the idea that exposure leads to more work, which it actually kind of doesn't, expo- in, in my opinion, or 
in in it, sometimes it can definitely like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it doesn't all the time but I don't think it has like you said the same value yeah well I mean you know the internet exists people don't need help with general exposure anymore you can do that yourself and um, you know but I did stretch myself to try and think about all the possibilities here and, and I can see that someone sometimes at the right stage of the career might be looking for exposure if it is statistically sort of likely to lead to paying work it's something that um Katie Lane talks about a lot on her awesome website, Work Made for Hire. Have you guys been on that? It's great. Really really good site. We'll post it in the show notes. Um, It's an awesome resource when it comes to negotiating all of these sorts of things. Um, And she talks about, you know, if you can somehow show the people who you're asking to work for you for free, you know, that they're they're more likely to get well-paying jobs after they work for you, well, then perhaps, yeah, that's valuable exposure. But generic stats like X number of people read the website every day doesn't mean anything. I mean, why would those random readers necessarily translate into paying gigs, you know? And I think as well, it it comes down to the fact that if your campaign or brand or whatever is actually big enough to make the exposure, you know, of a reasonable degree, then chances are you can afford to be paying for the work in the first place. And it does, and absolutely, and it doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have to pay kind of full price or Mm. that there aren't kind of concessions that can be made. Totally. This is an area that I think where creatives really need to educate themselves on the legal ramifications as well, especially around kind of taxes. And this is where we're going to get into a big Australia, New York kind of divide over here. But in Australia, for example, not every charity or not-for-profit is called DGR registered, Mm. meaning that you can actually have uh, deductible gift recipient status, meaning that like you can donate something and to claim those reduction in your taxes. But Yeah, there are very specific laws around what can be given that sort of status. But a lot of the bigger charities are. And I'm always really surprised that some some tactics that we try to use is actually say that okay well if we we can give you this work in kind then can you give us a you know a tax deduction on this or can you kind of treat that as a donation and that's always been kind of turned down and again this kind of comes down to i guess the underlying thing about really having one-on-one conversations and being willing to engage fully with the with the freelance economy and with your freelancers about getting these things because what you're after is an individual result it's not going to be a cookie cutter thing so tax deductions i think is something that can be explored but i haven't seen it explored much and it's just the same as tax in lots of ways especially if you're helping a charitable organization that is contributing to public good in that regard contra is also a really big one again like depends what the contra is (laughs) yes (laughs) we've had some funny offerings have we yeah, I can't reveal on the podcast. <laughs> we haven't got unlimited nuggets, though, have we? Oh, I would take that job. <laughs> Jeremy, you can pay me in unlimited nuggets. The, the Actually, I take that back. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> the, the PR, marketing, and social side of things like also like has significant value, and that's kind of something that can be given back as well. Um, I think the bottom line is it has to be it, – it's just – it's. It's just a simple value proposition. There needs to be kind of exchanges. Of course, artists are getting something from having their work out there. And of course, everyone wants to do some good. But at the end of the day, we just need to be willing to sit down and kind of talk about what a fair exchange is and come to an agreement there. Mm. Hey, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I was just going to say there's been some interesting, especially, you know, I moved to New York at a pretty interesting time politically. And there's been some incredible, um, well, quite a lot of websites and and resources that have popped up to help uh, match creatives with organizations that they might believe in so I think it's I think it's kind of turning at the moment where it's almost you know if if creators want to use their voice for something good there's a lot more availability to find ways to do that um, 
outside of being approached by an advertising agency or a client to do it for them. Yeah, and a lot of people are genuinely honoured to be able to donate that time and work to a cause that they really care about. You know, And I know a lot of companies and freelancers specifically set aside resources in order to be able to take on a certain amount of pro bono work each year. Mm. So it's something that people are thinking about. But again, going back to B, what you were saying before about you know, how you approach someone and what you need to do when you're approaching them. I think one of the key things that, that's sometimes missing, which seems really obvious, but is making it really clear, like, how that work's going to be used, how it's actually going to benefit the charity, what the charity will do with any money that it receives as a result of the work. And, you know, really letting them know, letting the person you're approaching know, how will their work make a difference? Mm. What what benefit is it going to bring? And honestly, that probably makes it harder for the person to turn it down, you know. Um, but also as well, like, making sure that you tell them why you love their work, oh, why yeah. they're the right yeah. person for the project. Again, B, that just it goes back to what you are saying about researching the right people to approach. Um, but, I mean, you know, you're asking someone to donate their time for nothing in exchange but the sort of warm, fuzzy feeling of being a good person. So, you know, it's important that you're not just BCCing them into this mass impersonal email. Be engaged with their work. Um, flatter them. Write your request with that specific person in mind um, about respecting them and and giving them the time that you're asking from them. Fantastic summary, Laura. I think, yeah, that's definitely a lot of food for thought there. Wrapping up, as we're trying to do every week, is the most Melbourne and the most New York thing that we've seen. I continue to have seen nothing this week except for the amazing blimp that um, Micah from our office posted. Oh, so good. The Carton Draft Pint Blimp. That's super Melbourne. What a thing of beauty. Not only was it... At like seven in the morning. (laughs) Do you think people were in it? No, well, you I have, guess to, you you have, have to, to have yeah. people in it. It, was, it couldn't have been a drug oh, blimp. That's a, a good job. But basically, it's a blimp, which is a very Melbourne thing. Lots of blimps in the morning. Mm. Not just any blimp, but a blimp that looked like a pint of beer, and not just any beer. Carlton draft. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I th- do we have an Instagram of that that we can put in the show notes? Maybe we'll do that. We'll Laura, try. what have you seen? Um. I don't know if I've seen anything. That I, I did something very Australian with my friends on the weekend. We had Christmas in July, um, trying to sort of pretend we were having a white Christmas, which was nice. We had, um, you know, we cooked lots of food and we did Kris Kringle and we drank lots of booze and uh, we felt like shit the next day. It was just like real Christmas. <laughs> and B, in New York, what went on over there? Oh, gosh, mine's really, mine's really boring, but grocery shopping here is a bit of a unique experience you know, as he's riding the subway, but that's stories for another episode. Um, only at Trader Joe's can you walk in and the line for the checkout is the entire way around the store. And I had a, com- I was in the, I was buying groceries the other night at Trader Joe's waiting in the line, was there for about 15, 20 minutes and heard this in- woman's entire life story as we were waiting in the line together. <laughs> and what was it? Oh, she's just telling me about her life. I just think it's the... She was directly telling you. I thought you were eavesdropping. Oh, no, no, no. She just turned around and shouted to me because we were in a line that stretched the entire supermarket. I don't know if that reflects on the fact that she has a very short life and short story or that the line was that long and you were just in there for hours. (laughs) Bit of both. It was a bit of both. Thank you, Bianca. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you, Laura. Thanks. (laughs) 
This has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Jackie Winter Gives You the Business is a weekly podcast about creative project management and production and just making things happen in general. Our producer is Areej Noor. You can find the Jackie Winter Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Jackie Winter. And you can email us with any recommendations, feedback, questions, or comments at podcast at JackieWinter.com. Archives of all of our shows and show notes can be found at our show page at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. Our theme music is by the Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you like what you hear, you can really help us out by subscribing on iTunes, rating us, commenting too. Details are on our website at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Bye-bye. If you don't keep this in, I'll be very disappointed. I'm going to thank you individually. We'll do call and response for each of you, okay? Thank you, Bianca. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Laura. Oh, now I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Bianca. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Last time. Thank you, Bianca. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Jeremy. Or thank you. Why don't just... you just do the whole bloody thing, Jeremy? <laughs> 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 <laughs>